influence is a powerful thing. Leadership is influence, and everyone has influence. The question is, how are you stewarding yours? Everybody needs to walk onto a stage with a woman speaking with a British accent at some point in their life. <laughs> I love that video of the, the Air Force. It's just such a great example. I mean, with all these rules and regulations, you'd think it'd be a hard place to make a difference. And yet, we see that this commander did just that. And in this series, we're looking at this idea of how everyone has influence. And you have a sphere of influence, every one of us. We have a zone, a, a place where we can create change in other people's lives, either for good or for bad. And the leaders among us are those who recognize this influence and begin using it intentionally. See, a, a true leader grows in the ability to influence. They hone that capacity. And so in essence, all of us have influence and all of us can lead. But some of us are here and we're thinking, okay, I, I'm not a leader. And I have to tell you, I uh, was not a natural born leader. And some of you are saying, well, you're still not. But that's not <laughs> really the point. But I can tell you that I tried to avoid any sort of leadership role growing up. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to just look like everyone else, act like everyone else. I didn't want that sort of opportunity. And yet, I remember in youth group, our youth pastor asked me to be in charge of a project. Before I knew it, I was a leader. My parents, in order to use the car that I actually paid for with my own money, would not let me use that car unless I tried out to be the drum major in the band. I did, and I made it. I was shocked. And I got to drive my car again. When I was in college as a sophomore, I was asked to be a co-director of a, a steering committee. And these were little tiny moments, but they were moments that gave me a sense of possibility, that, that helped me develop confidence, that helped me begin to see that, that even I could somehow make a difference. Justin McCarty, he's our North Campus pastor, told me that he grew up as an unlikely leader as well. In fact, what really helped him was when he had a mentor tell him that this is what leaders do. Leaders lift. And that phrase, those two words, kind of reframed everything for him. See, our world has a strong sense of gravity, not just physical. But everything is prone to sink, to degrade, to spiral downward. Our vision, our sense of purpose, our effectiveness, our passion, the values we hold to. But leaders stand with God and join him in lifting that trend line. Leaders actually choose their attitude and how they speak and how they care for people, how they will sacrifice, how they give, how they will serve. Leaders use their influence to lift everyone else who are content to sink. Have you looked around? Have you seen the degradation? Have you seen the sinking around you? Is there something inside of you pointing towards this desire to do something about it? See, leaders lift. We can use our influence to make a difference, to be more intentional with the influence that we have. And if you're resistant, you might have 
had thoughts like, well, I, I, I can't influence. I don't have any authority. I'm just a dot, 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 fill in the blank. You may not actually have a title, but you still have influence. We might feel like we're a nobody, but oftentimes the most important influence isn't in the spectacular, but in the ordinary. Today, we're looking at yielding our influence intentionally and never being limited by our title or rank or position, but serving and influencing and leading. Or you might think, I'm not like them. In your mind, you have this idea of a leader as like a CEO or a, a president or a, a coach. We have this leadership stereotype in our mind. But leadership styles are as unique as thumbprints. You don't have to be a certain kind of person to lead. It's about how you intentionally use that influence that you have. And some of you may be thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. Sometimes unlikely leaders do have a track record of influencing people. Only they have led them in the wrong direction. And as a result, you might sit there feeling like a failure or ashamed or disqualified. But God sees you and me and sees potential. As we talk about here, there's a masterpiece under all that mud. And today I want to look at just three unlikely leaders that we see in the scriptures. The Bible is full of people who are unlikely leaders. And some, we hear their names and, and they're legendary. They're, they're, we've actually named our children after them. And so they seem far less relatable, but when you actually look at the story, you, you begin to see how mundane and yet extraordinary they were. Take, for example, Ruth. Ruth was written about in one of the shortest books in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And she's one of the most unlikely leaders in history. If you know the story of Ruth, Ruth was not even an Israelite. And the story of the Scriptures is how God chose a people, the people of Israel, and he blessed them to be a blessing to all nations. And he did that by revealing his character to them in the way they collected what has become the scriptures and in the promised Messiah who has come. And Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't from Israel. And she married an Israelite man, yet sadly her husband died unexpectedly leaving her alone with her mother-in-law and her sister-in-law, who also lost her husband. And when tragedy befalls Ruth, Naomi is quick to tell Ruth and her other daughter-in-law to move on, to go back to her people and begin a new life. But Ruth doesn't budge. She refuses to leave Naomi. She has a fierce sense of loyalty and devotion that comes roaring out. Listen to what it says in Ruth chapter 1. After Naomi told her to go back, Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. I think Naomi may have been a little frightened <laughs> by Ruth. By the way, some of you are like, wait, could you read that again? Did you just read a passage that tells us how to get our mother-in-law to stop talking? <laughs> and you may have noticed a familiar phrase in that passage. 
It's often read at weddings. That where you go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. It's actually more accurately between the bride and the mother-in-law. It's not nearly quite the same <laughs> anymore, is it? And that's what makes this so extraordinary. In this time in history, women were completely dependent on the men for provision. Staying with Naomi was almost like a death sentence. But she had inside of her this devotion, this loyalty that she could not leave her. She could not go without seeing her cared for. And in time, they come in contact with some of Naomi's relatives. Boaz, who is utterly impressed with Ruth, her work ethic, her compassion, and her devotion to Naomi. He goes out of his way to make his, 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 the life of Ruth and Naomi a little bit easier, arranging for, for protection for her as she labors in the field to provide for Naomi. And when Ruth has an opportunity to ask Boaz why, he responds with this. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I was watching the, the Bible Project video on Ruth, which we posted on our Gateway Facebook page. But it's fascinating when you discover that in this short little book, God is rarely mentioned. But the work of God is evident throughout the book. So many things just happened just in time. It, it had to be a miracle of God. And it's a reminder that a, God works in the midst of even mundane moments in life. So how is Ruth using her influence? What is she lifting as a leader? Will leaders lift character? Ruth chose the high road, the way of integrity, loyalty, devotion, compassion, and love. No one expected her to. Her sister-in-law bailed as soon as she had the opportunity. This was not the easy way. The easier way was to look out for yourself, to go home, to build a new life. To say to Naomi, good luck, you're on your own. But she didn't. She chose to lift character right where she was in the ways that she could. She didn't let those lies we discussed earlier, I don't have any authority or I'm a nobody, limit or define her. And not only did she change Naomi's life, but people took notice. She exerted influence through her character, and Boaz saw it, and a blessing came her way because of it. See, our world is in desperate need of leaders who will lift character. We are influenced with so many influencers in our 21st century, Instagrammed and media-saturated world. But we're short on people of character, people we can trust people we can emulate, people of integrity, people who serve rather than demand to be served. Philippians 2 says it like this. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Right where you are, you can choose the path of character, and in doing so, you become a light in our dark world. Right where you are. You can choose the path of greatest resistance in the classroom, in your neighborhood, where you work, in your home. Choosing the high road rather than just going along with 
what everyone else might do. Incidentally, if you know the rest of the story, Ruth and Boaz get married. And actually, she goes on to have a child who has a child named David. She was the great-grandmother of King David. And ultimately, the line of the Messiah, Jesus, was born to the Moabite woman named Ruth. Well, there's another named Joseph, another unlikely hero. And what's interesting about him is if you know the end of the story, it, it, you think, how could he be an unlikely leader? I mean, Joseph ended up second in command over the entire empire of Egypt. It was through his leadership that the people in that region of the world were actually provided for in the midst of a great famine. But if you go back to the beginning of his story, it didn't start off so well. He was betrayed by his brothers who were jealous of him and sold into slavery. He was purchased by a man named Potiphar, far from home, enslaved. He could have given up, and yet he decided to grow in influence. Listen to this story. It says, Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph. So it succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. When as a slave, Joseph basically takes charge of everything that Potiphar owns. He had incredible influence. And so what we see in his life is he lifted competence. See, leaders lift competence. Not only do we lift the level of character, we can lift the competence of those around us. Joseph worked diligently and faithfully, stewarding well what was given to him. He worked at his responsibilities and got better at them, and as a result, it was natural for Potiphar to entrust him with more. Now, don't you find it interesting that this passage says that Joseph succeeded in everything that he did? Being a slave doesn't sound like success. And yet, this idea of success is so totally different in the Hebrew mind than in ours. Others translate this word success with the word prosper. Well, that doesn't help anymore because when we think of success or prosperity, we think of material possessions. We think of material wealth. But this word has so much more to it than we realize. It, this means moving forward or making progress. See, what was catching Potiphar's attention was Joseph was not motivated like the other slaves. Joseph went about his work accomplishing his task for something or someone much higher than Potiphar. And Potiphar saw this. See, prosperity here has to do with performing a task, even an earthly task, for an earthly boss as if it were serving God and not man. Prosperity is to do any job as unto God with honor, a teachable heart, and with God's wisdom. The scriptures use that same word 
translated as success or prosper in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. God says that the person who lives according to his word, rather than according to the world's wisdom, will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, there's this connection to have success in God's eyes means to be connected to God, to advance in the ways of God, to move forward in what he has called you to do. And it's interesting how Potiphar notices God was with Joseph. If we were to look at that original version in Hebrew, it actually says when he looked at Joseph, he saw God. When people look at you, can they see God in you? Because he saw God in Joseph. He saw something different about Joseph. He was living for something bigger than what his circumstances would indicate. How are you doing with competence with where you are? See, in God's eyes, success is not about what you have, but what you do with what you have. Are you doing your best at whatever you've been given? Because what happens is when we are faithful in the little things, God gives us more. Listen to what Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, Paul, who was in prison when he wrote many of his letters, was writing to Christ followers who were enslaved. Most of Christ followers in those days were slaves. And so it puts things in perspective. Whether you're flipping burgers or performing surgery, changing diapers or taking exams, our influence can be exerted by doing with excellence and striving to get better. If Christ followers taking Paul's words seriously, then we ought to be the best bakers, construction workers, mechanics, nurses, students, IT professionals, government workers, educators, realtors, engineers. Every sector could be lifted because those who follow Jesus... Lift competence. We serve, we work, not for those around us, but for those, for the one who gave us life. And you may be thinking, you don't understand. My life is terrible. I'm just barely surviving right now. Well, it might encourage you to know that Joseph, the slave, was promoted to overseeing all of Potiphar's uh, everything that he owned, his entire household, only to be falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. And once again, it says, and God was with Joseph and he was successful in everything that he did. It's not the kind of promotion you're looking for. And yet, no matter what you may face, you can experience the presence of God. You can do the best with what you have with God's help. At a recent Global Leadership Summit, the conference John mentioned earlier that we would love for you to join us in August. There's a fascinating story of a woman named Alan Catherine Kajina from Uganda. For 20 years, she's been working at what's called the Uganda Revenue Authority. It's like their IRS. And when she got there, it was known for its corruption, unfair practices, and perpetuating poverty among the Ugandan people. 
And when she got there in her own little area, her own little sphere of influence, she pushed for fair treatment and integrity and increasing effectiveness. And as a Christ follower, she struggled with how to be a person that God was calling her to be in such a broken environment. And her pastor told her, you don't understand. You are a God-anointed tax collector. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? And yet she saw that. She believed that. Her diligence led her to greater influence in a position of authority, and she instituted reforms. Many of them were controversial. Listen to this. At one point, she laid off everyone that worked there for two months, and everyone was welcome to apply for their job back. This gave her a chance to start afresh, to dislodge the entitlement and reinvent a culture of competence. And now, where she works is known as a place where other companies try to come and recruit from within. They're known for their excellence in an industry, in a country that has not typically been known for such. Well, the last unlikely leader is Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the early Christ followers. And he wasn't one of the apostles. We really don't know much of his story. We know that his name means son of encouragement. He was probably an optimistic kind of guy, maybe a little bit gullible, a good guy, but not necessarily a big influencer. That is until an anti-Christian, hate-filled person named Saul had an unexpected encounter with Jesus. See, Saul had been going around actually killing Christians, actually dragging Christians off to prison. And suddenly, in the midst of his pursuit of persecuting Christians, he has this encounter with Jesus. And he begins to tell the people around him that he no longer wants to kill Christians, but instead help others follow Jesus. And you can imagine how the early Christians received him. Uh, how do I know? <laughs> You're telling me the truth right now. You had a vision of Jesus. So he actually goes to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Christianity, in that time to get to know the apostles, but the apostles, but no one believed him. They think he's coming to trick everyone, to lure the Christians out of hiding. Except Barnabas. Listen to Acts chapter 9. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas used what influence he had to vouch for Saul, who later became Paul and incidentally wrote most of the New Testament, many of the passages we read from today. Barnabas was the first one to believe in him, the first one to listen to Saul's story, the first one to defend him. Now, because we weren't there in first century Jerusalem, it's hard to convey how remarkable this really is. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, believed in Saul before anyone else did. 
And he not only stepped out and stood up for Saul, he actually was saying, you can entrust your lives to what I believe about Saul. He was not only putting his own life at risk, but the lives of others. He defied fear and chose to step into what God was doing. See, leaders not only lift character and lift competence, but leaders lift courage. I promise you, someday soon, maybe tomorrow, there will be a need for courage. And with God's help, you and I can step into those moments, wherever we are, and stand up when we see something happening that's wrong. To have the courage to step across the line like Barnabas did and believe in someone who no one else believes in. The courage to do the right thing when everyone else is taking a pass. The courage to stand up for someone. The courage to resist the voice of fear that's yelling in your ear. So you have a sphere of influence and without lifting courage, that sphere is prone to sinking. I wonder if you realize it is not an accident where God has placed you. That there are people in your life right now that need you to become that influencer, that servant leader that God has designed and created you to become. You have influence. Everyone does. What will you do with that influence? What if each of us took responsibility for which, whichever measure of influence that we had? What if, like Ruth, we picked the higher road even when no one was looking? What if, like Joseph, we worked with all our hearts even on small, seemingly insignificant things like it was foremost on God's mind? What if, like Barnabas, we stepped forward boldly for what is right even if everyone else cowers in fear? Instead of sinking, the world rises one person, one life at a time. See, God is actively calling you to offer up your influence to him and his lifting purposes in the world. And when we trust him, when we step out and allow him to transform us, things can happen among us, ordinary people, partnering with an extraordinary God. We live in an amazing place, but Austin can also be a very lonely place. Austin needs us to rise up, to become people who serve and love, who listen to their stories, who share our story. You are needed right in the middle of your ordinary life to partner with God so he can do extraordinary things in you and through you.